Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. War crimes and crimes against humanity are being committed nearly every day in Ukraine. We can see it on our TV. Russian forces are apparently deliberately targeting civilian infrastructure in ways that violate international humanitarian law. So what opportunities might exist to hold perpetrators of atrocity crimes accountable for their actions? Joining me to discuss this question and more is Mark Kirsten. He is a researcher at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the Global Justice Lab at the University of Toronto, founder of the excellent blog Justice in Conflict, and works at the Wayemo Foundation. We kick off with an extended conversation about the role of the International Criminal Court, which formally opened an investigation in Ukraine on March 2nd. We also discuss other potential opportunities and venues for justice and accountability for war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine. So this is obviously a very timely topic. It comes just as leaders around the world are searching for opportunities for justice and accountability for obvious war crimes and crimes against humanity. We are all seeing unfold in Ukraine. And the topic was recommended to me a couple of weeks ago by a member of the audience, and I'm glad she did. This is all to say, if you have a suggestion of someone I should interview or a topic I should cover, please do feel free to reach out. You can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, or you can email me using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. Thanks so much. All right, now here is my conversation with Mark Kirsten. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, so, Mark, before we start the formal part of the interview, how would you feel if I used the term atrocity crimes throughout this interview to refer to crimes against humanity, war crimes, and genocide? Is that like a useful catch-all term for much of what we will probably be discussing today? Yeah, I think that's that's great, and I just uh, remind people that I know it gets a l maybe less attention, although it's getting more with the context in Ukraine that included in atrocity crimes. We should also, um, even if it is limited, be thinking about you know the crime of aggression. But yeah, that that works for me. Thanks, oh, Mark. not to worry. In my interview notes, I have a like a, a note to myself to have a digression <laughs> with you about the crime of aggression. Right. So I, I am prepared. Um, okay, so so. Mark, just to, to kick things off, based on what you have seen so far in this war, what sort of crimes do you suspect have been committed? Yeah, so I think 
the most obvious are war crimes and crimes against humanity related to what we see in images and in the footage of news outlets, which is what appears to really be kind of indiscriminate shelling um, and attacks against civilian populated areas. Um, obviously, there was the the attack on the on the the maternity ward um, in in Mariupol, so that was striking. But I think a lot. I think I think it's it's interesting to note that Ukraine has followed Syria as the most documented war in our time. Like we're watching it happen, um, you know, in in real time with video, so we can see the kind of evidence that would point towards these kinds of crimes being committed, in particular those against um, civilians. Uh, what's more challenging, I mean, I think it's not too difficult, in my view at least, to identify most of these as kind of war crimes or crimes against humanity. What's What will be more difficult is then taking that information and saying, okay, well, we can build a case that attributes responsibility for that atrocity crime, as you put it, to a specific individual or specific actor, be it, you know, in the Kremlin in Moscow or on the ground um, in Ukraine. And, and that's of the job, uh, presumably, of someone like the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting that on March 2nd, the prosecutor of the ICC, uh, the British barrister Karim Khan, announced an investigation into alleged crimes in Ukraine. Um, but Ukraine's not a member of the International Criminal Court. So can you explain how this ended up on his desk and presumably within the jurisdiction of the ICC? Yeah, it's an interesting story. A lot of people are wondering, I think, why isn't Ukraine a member state of the International Criminal Court? Initially, um, a constitutional the constitutional court in Ukraine had actually found that basically it would be unconstitutional for the, for Ukraine to join the ICC. But there were constitutional amendments in 2016 um, that led it um, kind of, to, I guess, amendments that I, that permitted the government to sign up and join the International Criminal Court. They have not done so. But what they did in 2014 and then a couple of years later is use a provision under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which allows non-member states like Ukraine is to accept the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. At first, they did it over the events in the Maidan Square and is quite uh, circumscribed kind of time and space that the, they invited the ICC to investigate. And effectively, the prosecutor at the time declined to do so. And then they increased the almost at the same time as as they declined uh, the ukrainian government at the time increased the kind of jurisdiction in time and in space to include uh events in eastern ukraine so in donetsk and luhansk and uh and, and crimea and so ukraine has effectively kind of voluntarily i would put it accepted the jurisdiction of the international criminal court which is the basis on which the icc can act and then, as you mentioned, the court has opened an investigation. And um, as of right now, I believe the number is 41 states, members of the International Criminal Court, 
primarily from the West, have referred the situation in Ukraine to the International Criminal Court uh, just a couple of days ago, and the numbers seem to increase by the day. So a quite remarkable kind of collective effort to request um, and push the ICC prosecutor to get this investigation going, which, as you noted, um, he announced a couple of days ago. And I note, because uh, I think it is an important development, that the prosecutor himself, Mr. Karim Khan, is currently in Ukraine and has just completed a meeting, um, a, a meeting on Zoom or some kind of di digital apparatus with President Zelensky and also met with other members of the Ukrainian government, which is quite a remarkable thing given the fact that there are ongoing hostilities. So he's in Ukraine right now, or was at least very recently in Ukraine. What do we know about his trip? I mean, has there been much public information about who he met and what he was doing there? Yeah, I believe he met with the justice minister and then didn't meet with uh, Zelensky directly. Um, the, the news just came out, you know, about an hour or two hours ago with uh, an announcement by the International Criminal Court itself that he was there. For obvious reasons, that probably wasn't going to be, you know, that wasn't going to be information that was spread in advance for security uh, purposes. Um, but Perhaps, you know, we we saw the political leaders from the Czech Republic and Poland, and I believe it was uh, Slovenia or Slovakia. Um, my apologies for getting that mixed up, but uh, they, they were in Kiev the other day. So perhaps uh, he felt compelled to that for security reasons, he could do so, too. We don't know much more about it, but um, I think it is an indication of kind of two things. One is the obvious thing that... Um, obvious issue that the prosecutor is clearly taking this investigation extremely seriously. And two, um, traditionally, the International Criminal Court and its staff have been very hesitant to put staff, including investigators, into harm's way by sending them to investigate atrocities in the context of ongoing and active conflict. And Prosecutor Khan has sent already, there's been a team of investigators on the ground from the ICC for some time now in Ukraine. And in addition, the fact that he went himself, I think marks quite a, an important uh, shift in suggesting that the court is willing to do maybe some of the riskier but very important and hopefully fruitful work of investigating crimes as they're being committed. That's, that's fascinating. Um, so what can we expect from the ICC in, I don't know, like the, the coming days? Like, what does it mean to have an investigation ongoing? Like, what is the ICC doing right now in the context of Ukraine? Yeah, so hopefully no one knows. Um, in the sense that if, if you and I knew or if people knew, then I think there'd be a real risk to the safety and security of some of these investigators and there'd be perhaps some attempts to interfere with their evidence collection. So in, in very specific terms, I really do hope that very few people know exactly <clears throat> where these individuals are and, and what precisely they're doing, because I think knowing that could potentially thwart their, their important efforts. But I think one thing that's important to keep in mind, and it relates to what we were just talking about, that the ICC has been looking into allegations of these atrocity crimes since at least 2014. So this isn't um, 
while it only opened the investigation a couple of days ago, this isn't a situation like, say, in Libya or, um, I don't know, even Kenya, where, you know, there was, maybe not Kenya, but let's say Libya or or Darfur, where an investigation was opened very quickly after, um, after the ICC kind of um, was... Uh, was interested in in potentially investigating the situation. It's we're, we're talking about a quite a long period of time, and the possibility that the court, and not only the court but other actors, NGOs, uh, the Ukrainian authorities themselves, have been gathering evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in the east. So they probably are already working with um, a pretty decent evidentiary basis, and now want to assess whether current crimes or alleged crimes um, can be added to that. What we should expect, I don't think, I personally don't think we should expect very much in the near term. Perhaps the evidentiary basis and the evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity is so strong that we'll see arrest warrants issued in the next couple of weeks and in the next couple of weeks. But this prosecutor strikes me as someone who's pragmatic and extremely careful. And in the short history of the International Criminal Court, rushing things has never led to, um, you know, to, 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 to justice being meted, let alone um, good things for the institution uh, itself. So, I don't know where the current investigations stand or how close or how distant they are to maybe issuing arrest warrants or requesting uh, arrest warrants to be issued. But I don't think the expectation should be that, you know, this is an immediate thing. They have to do this diligently, carefully. They have the advantage of having, you know, been having probed what's happened in uh, eastern Ukraine for some time. But I think um, the court has to be very careful and the one thing I would just add um, is that the prosecutor, Kareem Khan, has, unlike perhaps some of the prosecutors before him, really stated that, you know, he um, he will not pursue cases against individuals unless the evidence um, the evidence is effectively trial ready. So mm. he won't seek an arrest warrant unless the evidence is so strong that he thinks on the basis of that evidence, even though he wouldn't necessarily need it, that uh, that he could successfully prosecute and, conv- and get a conviction. So, so I know you saw this pretty striking interview that David Sheffer gave to CNN. David Sheffer is probably like one of the more preeminent American scholar practitioners in like the international criminal court, international criminal law space. He's the former U.S. ambassador for war crimes issues. I think he even like helped negotiate the Rome statute on behalf yeah. of the of the Clinton administration back in the day. And he's a professor now. But he said in that interview that he expected once this kind of ball is set into motion that it will inevitably lead to the indictment and arrest warrants being issued for Vladimir Putin himself. Um, Without having you maybe predict whether or not that will in fact be the case in the near or medium term, could you uh, um, perhaps discuss the wisdom and utility of indicting someone like Vladimir Putin for crimes in Ukraine? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I obviously, um, like many others, share the hope that that's where 
um, the ICC eventually goes. I think the bigger question is maybe, you know, to take a step back and say, you know, how is the ICC supposed to do that? Um, you know, how are they supposed to put a case together that is sufficiently strong that it would point directly to Putin, who, um, as far as I know, hasn't been to Ukraine in many, many years and certainly hasn't been there during the these current crises, unless we consider and we should uh, Crimea as part of the part of Ukraine. But so how do you how do you kind of how do you link what's happening in Ukraine and what has happened in Ukraine directly to him? And here, I think the ICC prosecutor has some interesting choices uh, to make. And with, you know, with all due respect to Professor Sheffer, I think that there, more consideration perhaps should be made amongst Khan's team, not myself, what I think shouldn't matter that much to them, but to, for example, um, perhaps first issuing arrest warrants for mid-level perpetrators. Why? Because those mid-level perpetrators may be able to provide uh, Prosecutor Khan and ICC investigators with the type of evidence that would more conclusively point to someone like Vladimir uh, Putin or Lavrov or some of the most senior people in, in, in the Kremlin. And there's lots of ways you can do this. It's not dissimilar to domestic criminal justice systems where you might you know, you might enter a plea negotiation where the mid-level perpetrators get fewer years for any potential conviction on war crimes uh, and crimes against humanity in exchange for providing uh, evidence. We, you know, the smoking gun when it comes to going after someone like Putin is kind of written orders that, you know, soldiers should enter into Ukraine and uh, and murder civilians or, you know, attack civilians uh, or, or civilian areas. I don't, I, I highly doubt that smoking gun exists, but maybe there have been people that we can patch together who have been in the rooms, who have received orders, and we can bring all of that evidence together to finally, uh, you know, say that the kind of evidentiary chain clearly leads um, to Putin. Again, I think we all kind of agree that he is morally and politically ultimately responsible for all of these atrocities, but getting um, ensuring that he's held criminally responsible is, I think, another thing um, altogether. I think there are some people who are worried that if we go after Putin, like what this might mean for maybe peace in Ukraine, but I wouldn't overstress the kind of peace versus justice debate in the context of Ukraine, uh, because I don't think Putin really cares that much uh, about the ICC's investigation. I really don't think uh, it matters very much to him. And in particular, this most recent bout of violence, I think, uh, has turned Ukraine and, made, and our response to it, the West in particular, but the UN General Assembly too, its response to it has made, um, I think it's made the conflict in Ukraine now something of an existentialist issue for someone like Putin. And when you know, when despots and dictators like Putin or Libya's Gaddafi start to feel like the outcome of a war is existential to them, things like the International Criminal Court or investigations um, just don't really matter in their calculus or in terms of shaping their behavior. So I wouldn't worry about that. And I think all the efforts that kind of attempt to point towards him are, uh, should, should, should be undertaken. It's just, again, a matter of what's the wisest course to get the evidence against him.
And then, of course, you're left with with the challenge also that to the extent that mid-level or top-level military officials are indicted or held criminally liable for crimes against humanity or war crimes in Ukraine, you know, they will never be extradited to The Hague from Russia. And so that's like one of, one of, of course, like the, the, the key challenges here. It's not like the ICC has like a police force that can roam the world arresting people and extraditing them to The Hague. They, you know, would they would live under indictment in Russia or if they left Russia to a country with like an extradition treaty, they might get nabbed, but that's about it. Yeah. And I think, I think it's worthwhile being, um, being quite sober about the referral and the kind of collective action we've seen with respect to the ICC in the sense that, you know, it seems that Putin is uniquely um, disliked by Western actors, in particular states, but also companies, human rights organizations, etc. It seems like he's uniquely disliked. But Gaddafi, too, in Libya, was uniquely disliked um, as well. And there was collective action from the Security Council then in 2011 to refer the situation in Libya um, to the International Criminal Court and to investigate and hopefully prosecute Gaddafi. Obviously, that didn't happen because he was killed in October of 2011. But one thing that I think we should never forget is that, you know, in the wake of that, in the wake of the ICC's investigation and intervention in Libya, those Western states and those members of the international community more generally who had sided with the ICC completely disappeared. They just stopped doing anything uh, that was particularly helpful to the ICC's cases. So um, I think you're right that that obviously I don't think anyone should expect that Putin will end up at the, you know, facing judges at the ICC unless there's, you know, something like some kind of regime change um, in Russia itself. But I think we should also be mindful that, yes, it's great that 41 states around the world, which is a third of the member states of the International Criminal Court refer to Ukraine to the ICC. And, you know, they're saying now I saw the health minister in the UK say, you know, we're going to help the ICC and give it all the evidence it needs to get uh, Putin uh, and others, etc. And this is all great. It's really important. But states, as we all know, uh, and Mark, you know, probably as well as anyone have uh, short memories and while I hope that this continues and that the support continues, there have been times in the past where that support has very quickly dissipated when interests have pointed elsewhere. I don't think Putin is the kind of guy that the West will be able to rehabilitate, um, but that it wouldn't surprise me if the support that we see for the International Criminal Court here um, isn't fully stable through time as the conflict changes and perhaps moves to a more post-conflict phase. Um, so beyond the International Criminal Court, uh, there are a couple other venues or opportunities in which justice may be pursued or considered in some ways. Uh, one is this idea floated, I believe, by the Ukrainians of setting up a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. 
you know, and, and the crime of aggression is basically, you know, the crime of invading one country, uh, one country invading another for, for no reason. Um, so what we're seeing now in Ukraine is like a textbook example of the crime of aggression. And I don't want to get too deep into the weeds, but if memory serves correct, the crime of aggression was not initially included in the statute of the International Criminal Court, I think owing uh, to the objections of the United States. Uh, but then in 2017 or 2018, thereabouts, it was included, though, with certain like restrictions on it, uh, thus necessitating this idea of a separate special tribunal for uh, the crime of aggression. Can you just maybe discuss what that Ukrainian proposal is, whether or not it has legs and, and what you know about it? Yeah, so just, um, yeah, so it's basically a, the act, crime of aggression has actually always been in the Rome Statute. Its definition, mm. its definition wasn't. So uh, I knew there's like some, some kind of quirk there. And, and if I recall correctly, it was, it was, you know, the Clinton administration signed the Rome Statute at like yeah. the 11th hour right before they left office. And they only did so because I think this crime of aggression was left undefined. Yeah, I, and I think that's one of I mean I think that's one of the reasons, and I think even when Bill Clinton signed the Rome Statute, he said maybe in this exact same statement announcing that he had done it that he did not recommend, um, you know, that Congress ratify the Rome Statute. Yeah. So a very symbolic action, but so the crime of but it I think it's useful and important to know that the crime of aggression has always been there, but it's absolutely correct that it's uh, the, the its definition basically was only added much later through negotiations and uh, the United States had a very significant impact on those negotiations and the short of it, I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of complexity that goes into it, but the short of it is that the crime of aggression is an extraordinarily neutered crime in the sense that the ICC can only investigate uh, the crime of aggression if both the state that was invaded and the state um, that is invading uh, are member states of the International Criminal Court. In this instance, neither Ukraine nor uh, Russia are member states of the ICC. But you can imagine that if a state was planning to invade another, they might withdraw from the ICC and therefore yeah. not be liable for the crime of aggression. They might have to wait a year, but that's probably not uh, a big deal for a state that's planning those types of activities. And you also had, there was an, a whole jurisdictional scheme where you had, even if you were a member state, you still had to kind of almost opt into the provision. So the short of it is that, you know, this is not, this is very frustrating to people because what's happening in Ukraine is a textbook example of aggression. Since the existence of the ICC and the Rome Statute, there's probably been two kind of textbook examples one is the invasion of Iraq, and this is the second one. It's just it it just seems to fit the bill so perfectly. An illegal war and an illegal invasion of a of a country, yet the ICC can't do anything about it, even though it has this crime of aggression under its uh, under its statutory scheme. So I believe it was actually Philippe Sands, an international lawyer of of significant repute, who proposed this idea that you know. You, we should create an entire ad hoc tribunal like the tribunals that we saw in the 1990s in U former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, but specifically oriented to investigating and prosecuting the crime of aggression. So you would have 
the domestic courts and the units in Ukraine who are investigating and prosecuting war crimes, crimes against humanity and other human rights violations. You would have the International Criminal Court that would be focused on war crimes and crimes against humanity. And then you would have, in addition, this ad hoc tribunal created by, you know, the United Nations or perhaps the Council of Europe. I'm not really sure on what the details are, but you would have this ad hoc tribunal and it would only be investigating uh, the crime of aggression, which would really mean that it would only investigate and potentially prosecute individuals from Russia and and, and Belarus, given that given Belarus's role in allowing its territory to be used as a launching point for the crime of aggression or for the invasion. And that that potentially means the political leadership there. That's like maybe a more direct way of, um, of, of going after the political leadership of Russia and Belarus is through this special ad hoc yet to be created tribunal on aggression. Yeah, that, that's that's it. And so it's created quite an interesting conversation amongst international criminal lawyers and jurists and whatnot uh, and proponents of human rights with some people saying it should be created and other people, and I'd include myself in this group, who are very hesitant uh, about this idea. I was you know, taught in international and uh, criminal justice and transitional justice that, um, you know, we're not we shouldn't be looking at ad hoc solutions that, you know, the permanent international criminal court exists and hybrid courts exist because ad hocs aren't particularly um, a good thing. Uh, And yet we're back to talking about ad hocs. And I was also taught that we should be very wary of Victor's justice. And we're now talking about the possibility of, you know, putting 30 or $60 million a year into an ad hoc court, which would, structurally, legally, procedurally, uh, politically only be oriented against Minsk and Moscow. And I'm worried about that. I'm also worried, um, you know, I think there's a political economy in international criminal law and international justice in the sense that, you know, not everyone, you know, there's, there's a marketplace for these kinds of mechanisms. And I am worried about what it says when Ukraine, which has a functioning judiciary and domestic criminal justice system. Uh, it, it has that. Then it has the International Criminal Court. And that's not enough. So we got to get it an ad hoc. So Ukraine gets all of these mechanisms, plus all of the other investigations mm. set up. And yet other states um, are the, the atrocities in other states are ignored, be it, you know, Tigray or um, or um, Yemen or whatever it may be. So I'm I'm a little bit I'm, I'm worried about what this says about the project of international justice. And I'm not sure it's necessary, which will be my last point, because I'm sure you want to get onto something else, which is that the crime of aggression can be prosecuted by Ukrainian domestic authorities. It's in their criminal code. And it's well, I mean, that assumes that, that, that the yeah. Ukrainian domestic political authorities, you know, exist like a week from now, two weeks from now, that that's not decimated by <laughs> Russian aggression. Right. Right. That, yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a fair, that's a fair point. My, my sense is that in some means they will be, but I think that you know, that that would be the kind of game changer where maybe then you have to think about other options. So one last venue that has been used so far by Ukraine against Russia has been the International Court of Justice, the ICJ. Now, this is like not a criminal court, like individuals aren't indicted. This is a, you know, sometimes called the World Court or UN Court, where members of the UN can kind of sue each other. And the ICJ can, the International Court of Justice can like render down 
binding judgments. What sort of action have we seen at the International Court of Justice thus far? Yeah, it's um, it's good timing, this question. We were talking about it just before. And they, um, you know, Ukraine basically brought... Uh, proceedings in front of the International Court of Justice against Russia in relation primarily, as I understand it, um, around the around Russia's justification for invading Ukraine in the first place. And Putin basically made these allegations that, you know, there's genocide happening against ethnic Russians in the east of Ukraine. And therefore, this uh, this is one of the, you know, uh, justifications for invading the country. So kind of, uh, and Putin has done this before in Georgia uh, and, and Crimea. These, he, he's often used kind of the language of humanitarian intervention to justify aggressive military actions and actions that are illegal under international law. But this is what he did. And Ukraine, um, one of the things that Ukraine did is it said, you know, this is just gobbledygook and it's just completely farcical uh, that, that this genocide happened. And so it brought Russia to the International Court of Justice and uh, claiming that, you know, if that if that um, claim, if that justification is groundless, then the invasion itself is illegal. Um, and today, the International Court of Justice very quickly, I should add, um, you know, provided uh, a decision which is aimed at kind of injunctive relief. It's a and it, like provisional measures, um, and it went further as I can t- as far as I can tell um, from the ruling, and it just came out an hour ago or something. But um, it looks like it's gone further than even Ukraine would have wanted, and it basically tells the Russian Federation to stop its military operations in the country um, immediately and to stop supporting any kind of military or irregular armed units. Uh, which may be involved in the conflict itself. Now there's the question of, you know, is that going to lead to anything? That's that that that's my guess is in the short term, at least probably not. I understand that these decisions can only really truly be enforced by the Security Council on which Russia sits. So it's unlikely that these provisional measures will be uh, enforced. But I do agree with others like Mike Becker. Um, and others who follow the ICJ that um, more closely than I do, certainly that, you know, it's it's about another it's about getting another drop, uh, you know, in the bucket. And that whether it's the International Criminal Court, the Commission of Inquiry that the Human Rights Council set up with respect to Ukraine, the companies uh, fleeing Russia, uh, the sanctions that are, you know, it seems like every day there's new sanctions or this this latest ruling on provisional measures with respect to Ukraine by the International Court of Justice, you're really, you know, you're you're filling the bucket with so many drops and each one may be a drop, but, you know, I guess you have to fill the bucket with drops and that seems to be what's happening. And I think even if one venue is kind of stuck, we can't get Putin to the Hague, we can't get these provisional measures by the ICJ enforced, Together, they're doing something that I think is almost unprecedented um, when it comes to international law and international justice efforts. Uh, Well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Mark Kirsten for joining me on the podcast. Again, I always appreciate his insights and thoughts on 
all things related to the International Criminal Court and International Criminal Justice. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.